Warning, this episode contains stories involving child sexual abuse. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Hello and welcome to the 39th episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Wand. This month for our series on giving voice to the voiceless, we will be talking with anthropologist Dr. William Tantum from the University of Bristol, who will be discussing with us about his very important work regarding the continued stigmatization and pervasive cultures of silence that surround child sexual abuse in the UK. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Of course. As per usual, we'll start off by having you tell us what drink you are having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself. William, would you like to start? Sure. So um, I'm in the office, a cocktail seemed out of, it seemed um, not in keeping with the context. So I've got... Okay, no one at work needs to know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can't tell from my cup, so I suppose it could be hooch. Yeah, but it's quite a teacup. You got to have that pinky up, you know? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, uh, but it's very, it's kind of black coffee. Um, I, I drink way too much coffee. I'm just totally addicted at this stage to coffee. That is the academic way. In the <laughs> eyeballs, intravenous coffee all the time. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's where it is. What are you drinking? I had a lot of coffee, which is why I needed a bathroom break before we recorded. Not that anyone needs to know that. But yeah, I, uh, I have a son. I have two kids and I have a son who uh, is thinks sleeping, sleeping is for chumps and he's a year old and last oh. night we had some some person i don't know who this person is but when i find them and they decided to set off fireworks on a tuesday evening at 11 o'clock at night and of course mm-hmm. i'd gotten the kids to bed which is great and then shortly afterwards my son decided it was party time so I uh, had a lot of slapping to the face. So today has oh, been no. pure coffee. All the dog was terrified because of the fireworks. My son yeah. was wide awake. I thought, you know what? Why sleep? Why sleeping is for silly people? So I do, I do get the coffee bit. But uh, I digress. So William, <laughs> you've got quite some important work that you do, and um, you know. For those that are listening, um, listener discretion is advised. Um, We will be talking about quite some sensitive material, Um, you know, and and I will say, you know, depending on how this conversation goes, uh, a lot of people that work in um, trauma related work, whether that's, um, you know, emergency crews, what have you, some of the ways in which they deal with traumatic events um, is through humor and dark humor. So I, I want to make it quite clear from the beginning, if we are, if we are, you know, having a jovial conversation, it's not at the expense of the people that we're talking about. It's not to be disrespectful, but I think it's, you know, humans have a way of, of processing information that can be quite hard to digest. So I just feel for those that are listening, understand that we are coming at this from the most respectful place possible. Um, and I, I think you would agree, of course, William, yes? Yeah, 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 of course. But at the same time, I'd say survivors that I work with, can be some of the funniest, funniest. I think we, I think we have a way of, uh, of, of dealing with the stuff that we've been through. So, um, I know we'll, we'll dive into that a bit more, but, um, could you tell us first of all, um, specifically about the work that you do and what initially got you involved in this topic? Yes, yeah, so I've come into it sort of via a bit of a circuitous route insofar as um i did my phd on football in jamaica so very different yeah i was gonna say Um, and then um in the course of academic careers you move about and things and i ended up working for best part of two years with 
the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse in England and Wales as part of the mm -hmm. research team, um, which has been so far the biggest inquiry of its kind anywhere in the world. Um, and following uh, that, I continue to work on this with colleagues and friends that I've made at the inquiry and then new colleagues and friends that I made afterwards. Um, yes, that's sort of how I got into it. There's a lot going on at the moment, um, which I'm really proud of. Uh, so we've got a couple of projects going on. One is about um, improving responses to disclosures of, sex of child sexual abuse, um, because we know that responses tend to be very poor. So we've got a project called Challenging Silences, which is hoping to produce a mobile phone app, which will talk people through how to receive a disclosure of child sexual abuse from a survivor's perspective. So that's been really brilliant work. Um, I'm also part of a network called the Network for Promoting Change, which mm. is um, a, a group of survivors and um, practitioners working on child sexual abuse. So that's therapists, clinicians, academics, researchers, survivor activists, um, many of whom hold multiple of, of these kind of roles. Um, and that's a really active network. And hopefully I can put a link to our fledgling website somewhere in your. Absolutely. In the show notes, we'll have all sorts of access to the apps that we talk about and any of the projects that you're working on. So for those that are interested, that will be available on the coffee and cocktails podcast.com website. So yes. Yeah. Right. And then, and the final thing. So we've actually got a zine coming out soon, which we're really excited Could about. Could you tell us what a zine is? I, I thought that was a typo. I thought it meant line. <laughs> <laughs> no, so um, zines are made. I mean, they they cover a panoply of different things, and there are some amazing websites out there. One that I'll shout out is there's um, a project called the Mad Zines Project, mm -hmm. which is emerging from um, an academic subject called Mad Studies, mm -hmm. and, and is al aligned with a journal called Asylum. Um, they zines themselves emerge from the feminist and punk movement. And this re was really about cutting and pasting and sort of making types of fan fiction, but also highly politically engaged um, kind of outputs that could be put together in a room quickly, reproduced and disseminated everywhere. Mm. So the idea is to take insights from, from this network of clinicians and survivors and things and make it more accessible to people in a more accessible format. So we've been working with an amazing illustrator um, called Janissa Paharia. We've got poems, um, we've got condensed, reduced language from the perspective of survivors and therapists and things. So it's kind of bringing these things together in an accessible and easy to distribute way. Um, so it's both, I guess the project is both creative thinking through how do you make these things that are unspeakable, um, you know, possible to talk about, um, as well as having something to hand which might speak a survivor who hasn't yet disclosed through the process of what they might expect or feelings they might be having or feelings others have had, or indeed a therapist through what what the survivor might be bringing to the room and, and the kind of fears and experiences they may well have had. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that I know you and I have, have talked about at length is the importance of anonymity when it comes to dealing with these sorts of issues. Um, could you tell us a bit more about this this inquiry that happened and the relevance behind it because this is quite a huge project that you were a part of that was brought before the government the uk government um could you tell us about how this came to be you know the the reasons behind it and then eventually what led to what you guys refer to as the truth project 
Okay, so, for, so uh, I should say that I'm not appearing as representative of the inquiry and there's a lot of um, important uh, legal frameworks and things like that that I'm not, because my my position was predominantly research, that I may not present um, as well as they would. So the Independent Inquiry into Child Sexual Abuse was set up in order to um, explore institutional failings to protect children in England and Wales mm -hmm. from sexual abuse. So from the outset, it was focused on um, sexual abuse, which took place in institutional contexts um, or perpetrated by institutional offenders, because we could think of sexual abuse that occurred away from institutional contexts, but were perpetrated by an institutional figure or someone that a child had that institutional relationship with. Um, relationship not in the sexual sense but in terms of the relationship of privilege um yeah so it was set up to do these things partially on on the back of um the revelations about jimmy savile and things like that and it becoming evident that england uh, and the uk more broadly although this was focused solely on england and wales had or were required to have quite a stern look at themselves yeah and i think i should if i could just for a second for those who are not those who are not from the uk who don't know about mm -hmm. jimmy savile he was a child like a, a child presenter wasn't he um and it wasn't until yeah. you could tell us a bit more about that because that's quite important to the story i think yeah so, okay so i'm not an expert on jimmy savile but uh, nor am i but we know enough about him yeah. i think you know fair enough yeah so he was he was a figure that um it's difficult to articulate the role that he played in UK English culture. So he was always a very strange, even he had his, a terrible haircut. I remember just an terrible haircut, absolutely awful haircut. One of horrible seventies tracksuits and vests and big cigars. Kind of like a clown suit as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but and but child presenter nonetheless. Yeah, he presented massive shows. So he had a show called Jim Will Fix It, where um, I don't know what they did, but that was his kind of. He also he also presented Top of the Pops, but he through his um, BBC links he would do things like he would have unrestricted seemingly access to children's wards in hospitals. He would be present at openings, um, and he used this position of power to sexually abuse many um, many victims and survivors over decades, but those who felt capable of disclosing the sexual abuse because for many they felt that there was no way they could disclose to but given his stature and his sort of unquestioned position of power yeah. um, it was evident that people had been reporting it in various guises and it was either being ignored or people weren't being believed and things like that um and it was through, I think the crucial aspect was that it was because of his validation through a institutions such as the BBC and through institutional figures like Margaret Thatcher and also links and links and appearing with the royal family that he was able to carry on for so long. Yeah. Um, and I and I think it wasn't until he died, correct, that that yeah. this all this information regarding the large amount of sexual abuse came to light after his death. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But the, the survivors pointed out that people have been reporting him for decades but it took him to die before they would be listened to. Mm -hmm. So this inquiry was created as a as a result of that? 
partially so i think um it really led to there was also um claims about claims that were then totally discredited um made by someone called carl beach um that there was a a child sexual abuse ring in westminster um that had been conducting sexual abuse um again for decades um unfortunately um this proved to be untrue and i say unfortunately because every time that although it's so rare every time a survivor is has been demonstrated to be lying it obviously has an impact on future survivors and how they think they might be perceived um mm. it was later demonstrated that he was lying um but there was this public moment a kind of culmination of jimmy savile i'm saying revelations because those were the things those were the terms used at the time it wasn't a revelation to people who um who were aware of what was going on um and this carl beach claim that i think the nation as a whole felt that there was a moment at which it needed to really consider failures to protect children and out of this theresa may um formally called for an inquiry okay and so the truth project was created could you tell us about that yeah so this is um for me is one of the most powerful elements of the inquiry um so the truth project was although they've the model is similar to elsewhere in the world so for example australian um inquiries into children's residential schools and aboriginal communities and torres strait islander communities but it was set up solely for any survivor who wanted to come forward um could establish a session by phone or in person um and come and share their experiences without prompt um and without follow-up questions or critique or anything like that so it was totally on their terms what they wanted to share how they wanted to share it they could also submit in writing as far as i'm aware um and it ended up more than around or slightly more than 6000 people ended up coming forward wow. of whom about 5000 and something um gave consent for for the details of their experience to be used for research purposes so lots of my role was looking into that mm, okay and um one of the things we'll talk about in a second but um what was quite important about this is that it was survivor led could you tell us a bit about about that why that decision was made oh so i don't know so i don't know why the inquiry made the decision to do that um i think it was really brave an important decision um could you tell us how, how why it's important i guess in the sense for s survivors to co-produce and guide research into child sexual abuse wow yeah so that's a i guess that's a separate issue insofar as truth project was explicitly not about research it okay. was um i think it served a number of functions one of the functions which is easy to underestimate was um a powerful institution listening to survivors in their own terms a kind of speaking speaking truth to power moment where it's not the institution that's guiding what's important and saying well you know these are just details or whatever but actually saying what you're telling us matters and how you're telling us matters mm -hmm. and we want to support you as best we can in doing that um and the most important thing is us listening so it's not about what we do with what you tell us although that can be really important it's about having that presence and giving the space to we are going to listen to you 
because we value what you say and what you're saying is important. Okay. Because one of the things that we talked about, and um, you have written about this uh, through the online uh, magazine Sapiens, um, is this issue regarding silence. Um, why do you think silence is still so pervasive in child sexual abuse cases, not just for survivors, but also for society as a whole? So silence, um, silence serves a number of important functions. Um, fundamental, I think, as I got quite into this, uh, uh, kind of ling linguists who work on silence have argued that while words can be produced on your own individually, silence is always co-produced, um, which I think is really important to recognise in the context of child sexual abuse, that it's not one person's failure to talk about it, it's a really mm. constituted silence. So I think survivors might be silent and by might be silent for a number of reasons, we might understand silence in a number of reasons. The more interviews I conduct and the more survivors that um, I speak with, the more it emerges that very, very rarely are there not bodily um, indications or behavioural indications which don't suggest that something, something is happening in the child's life. They might not say the words and in some cases because as a child they weren't able to articulate what was happening to them that meant institutions could quickly dismiss it um but silence can also be a protective measure a refusal mm. to speak um and i don't think that can be discounted the more pressing question for me as a non-survivor um is why society is silent about it and why people around um a sexually abused child or later a, a survivor in their later life, why society around them is silent and fails to support them appropriately. Um, and I think some of that is probably about self-preservation that um, I, as I representing society, can't deal with what you're telling me because I don't have the tools to process what you're telling me or I'm not able to shift my worldview um, with this new truth that you've presented me with. Hmm. You know, um, we talked about this before and I debated and still debate as we speak um, about whether or not to share this, but um, to break my silence, um, I was sexually um, assaulted when I was seven and um, it's not and, you know, you and I had talked about this um, before the recording and, and, you know, there was a lot that we talk about that can be quite triggering for me. But, um, you know, I thought about this silence aspect um, because I kept thinking, well, why am I being silent about it? Like, why, mm -hmm. why do I not want to voice what, what happened? You know, I don't need to go into details because it's irrelevant um, and it's private. Um, but the event still happened, um, several in fact. Um, I think it's interesting what you say regarding people not being able to process that information. I mean, you think about a child and you think about the innocence, you know, the sheer innocence of a child. 
And I, I do wonder psychologically, and I say this for myself, if it's too hard to process, I wonder if there's just this innate ability to be like, I can't handle this right now. This is too upsetting. And so I'm just going to shut down. You know, you think about people who, and I say this, you know, as somebody who grew up in a family where we still don't even acknowledge that it happened. Like my family knows it happened. Um, but my f- parents don't want to talk about it at all. And I understand why it's very upsetting for them, just as it was very, and still is very upsetting for me. But I think culturally, um, there is this apprehension to, I don't know, I don't know if it's fear. I mean, I, I know I'm thinking out loud, but I think about, you know, something that you should be able to talk about. And in my experience, I didn't feel like I could talk about it at all. But I think, you know, think about like when you talk about the birds and the bees with small children and parents are like, I don't want to talk about that, you know, and they, and they sort of shut down. Um, So imagine not being able to talk about the birds and the bees. And then, so, you know, already as a kid, like you just don't talk about that stuff with your parents. Um, Now imagine something actually happening to you and you can't even have like a generic conversation about the birds and the bees because everybody gets really uncomfortable. So then imagine something really horrifying happening that involves a sexual act or, or the touching of private parts. I mean, you know, you could see where the environment is such where a child, at least in my case, is like, no way in hell am I going to talk about this with my parents. Like, this is this is just so taboo. This is so awful. And I also thought about as well this idea of guilt and shame, which we'll talk about in a bit. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you're raised in an environment where you don't talk about sex anyway, and you're inevitably participating in an act that's quite shameful, it's understandable why the person who was the victim um, feels shame associated with it because they were actively involved in the shameful act. Even if they didn't want to be, they were the main sort of, you know, piece de resistance. They were the, the centerpiece, the most important element of that act. And it's, you can't remove that. You can't remove yourself because you were what was required for that to happen. Therefore, um, that guilt and that shame, you being the necessary element in this, uh, means you will have shame and you will have guilt because you were a part of something that was, quite frankly, disgusting, right? Mm-hmm. So I think in terms of this idea of silence, it's it's it, it brings up so many things and it's so heavy as well. I think silence goes beyond language. I think silence is heavily weighted mm-hmm. and it carries itself on your shoulders. It carries itself in your heart. It can affect your your um you know your metabolism your 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 mental health and and all sorts of things um so i think the fact that this truth project um was survivor led firstly i think that's incredibly powerful and i think it also gives power to the survivors to say no i'm going to own this and i'm going to decide how much i want to share and how much i don't want to share um but i also you know it says a lot about the people involved in the project that they're willing to sit and listen, mm-hmm. you know, cause sometimes silence might be what you get, but there's a lot you can unpack within that silence. Um, 
So with that, I'd be curious to know what kind of impact has your work and those of your colleagues had on survivors and um, continued victims of uh, child sexual abuse? Mm. Um, so for, firstly, I guess um, I just want to say I'm so sorry it happened to you. Um, and just want to recognize recognize you talking about that. Um, yeah, and I don't mean that from a kind of it's it's not. I, I appreciate it. I'm sorry for myself. I'm sorry for my my younger self. You know. Yeah, yeah, but I, I just want to recognize that you shared that, and um, yeah. Uh, so the impact of my work, and my colleagues' work. Uh, so. I think we we feel, and I think many people in the survivor community um, who appear in it in different guises, and I'm only a contingent ally to it, really feel that this is a, an important social moment um, to really push for some of the insights that uh, the inquiry, or we, those within the inquiry refer to it as ICSA, so if I use the okay, word sure. um, that you know, independent IICSA, so we call it ICSA, mm-hmm. um, feel that it proved, it proved that child sexual abuse is prevalent throughout England and Wales, as it is everywhere in the world, everywhere mm. the demographic data available for it, um, prevalence rates are broadly similar, um, and that it affects everyone in society. So it's not constrained to one um ethnic group to one age group to one sort of particular community for one class wealth group type of school you go to it the prevalence is indiscriminate um seemingly across society although inflected obviously by different cultural factors um so speaking for myself but i suppose having spoken with a lot of others we feel this is an important moment and mm. say well this can't be denied also, there have been, okay, not of the scale, but there have been prior, um, maybe not formal inquiries, but um, kind of similar projects looking at the scale and impacts of child sexual abuse in the UK that haven't really been acted on. And mm. if I say that the inquiry didn't find anything new. I don't say that to denigrate the work of the inquiry, but to say this is what those working in the field know to be the case. Mm. Uh, already and it just proved that further and at a greater scale that these things are happening and continue to happen um so i think what we're helping to do i would hope so is to contribute towards the process of destigmatization so that's through talking about it it could be through teaching about it in trauma-informed ways and um, from an anthropological perspective it's about recognizing that the shame that many for me this is it's important to recognise that the shame many survivors feel is society's shame. It's mm. not survivors' shame, although obviously survivors. Yeah, do I mean, feel survivors that. are going to have shame, you know. Yes, but, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. By that, I don't. I don't mean, and I don't mean that you know can wave a research paper and people won't feel ashamed. But it's rather to recognise that so frequently survivors can be required to do more, um, like need to try and disclose earlier, need to. Um, access therapy in particular ways needs to constantly reshare their experiences of sexual abuse but actually a lot of it now from my perspective is about saying survivors have failed from the outset and it's society that needs to be proactive in doing more 
um, to mm. support them and to listen. So not to require them to do more, but to do as much legwork as possible yeah. prior to asking survivors to do anything. You know, I think it's, you make up some really, you mean make up, you make, you say some really important things in terms of um, not pushing it too much in the survivors. Um, you know, when, one of the things that came out of the work that, that you had done, um, you and your colleagues obviously had done, was the fact that um, a good percentage of uh, the abusers actually came from within the family. So rather than in institutions, which I think society assumes it's either schools or, you know, religious institutions, but actually it's within, within home and, and family and friends. Um, and, you know, in my case, it was a, it was a friend of mine's dad um, who worked at a, a religious institution, which is a whole nother separate thing. But the point is um, mm -hmm. it was in a very safe town um, which goes to show that, you know, bad people exist everywhere. Um, but not to dive to, one of the things like, I guess, and again, I have a lot of questions in my head, um, this idea of not pushing survivors, I mean, getting back into this idea of silence, um, you know, for a very long time, I debated whether or not to um, take this person to court. Mm. Um, because of uh, the U.S., the laws are a bit different. Um, I wouldn't, I'm not a specialist in this. Um, they they might still have rules with regards to how many years, you know, if it's been yeah. too many years and they might not be able to, to do anything. But um, while one person had taken this individual to, um, to court, um, when that person was younger, her parents, I think, took her to, took him to court. Um, it was more like a slap on the wrist, I think, um, even though what he did was pretty terrible. Um, but in my case, as an adult, I debated whether or not to take him to court. And I spoke with my mom about it um, because over time I learned that there were other people um, within my friend group who'd also been um, assaulted, um, molested, what have you, by this individual at around the same age, seven, eight years old. And... Um, Anyway, I talked to my mom. I said, you know, I'm wheeze and me and this other individual are thinking about taking him to court. And she said, well, and do you really want to do that? I mean, I'll support you, but it's going to bring up a lot of terrible, terrible memories that you have spent a good part of over a decade, um, that time over a decade, um, trying to work your way through. Do you really want to have to face that day in and day out for months, if not years? If, in fact, this individual ends up getting a slap on the wrist again anyway. Um, and I think, you know, it, it goes to show why so many survivors don't even say anything. Because yeah. it's already bad enough having to process what happened and then having to figure out how am I going to pay for therapy? Um, which, thank you very much, abusers. We now have to pay money out of our own pockets for the horrible things that they did. Um, but then if we want to take this person to court, we're also going to have to pay our own money for that, for something that wasn't our fault that was put upon us. And, and now we get to pay for it. Like, that's really, really nice of you. Thank you so much. And I think the, what, the fact that you said that, you know, you don't want to push the survivors, you want them to be comfortable. It is a big deal because I think the way the support system, i.e. Uh, not that great of a support system that's yeah. put in place means that fiscally the survivor is going to have to fork out a lot and then psychologically that's going to cause even more damage potentially if they do yeah. feel like they have to go forward. 
Yeah, I mean, you cover so much ground there, um, and there are further compounding effects if we think about impacts for many on their school and education, and then the disproportionate rates of sexual abuse survivors in prison populations and homeless populations. Mm, mm. How do we even begin to countenance forms of restitution and justice when a person has ostensibly had many of their life opportunities curtailed? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I thought about, I know we talked about this before, but when I when I was assaulted, um, when I was younger, this was in the 90s, um, and I remember the school did nothing, like literally nothing. Well, I say that, they brought in a couple policemen, um, but it was so taboo, it was so taboo. And I remember the policemen, I mean, I was so little, you know, and I was so scared and... I didn't want to, I didn't know who to talk to. There was, I had a, a school counselor, but like, she's not my parents and my parents didn't know how to process any of this. And I just remember mm -hmm. they, they brought in a Barbie doll and they showed me the Barbie doll and they just said, could you, could you point on the Barbie doll to where he touched you? And in my head, I'm like, but he didn't touch me he made me touch him but i don't have the words for that and like yeah. why am i here why i should be you know in class with my classmates and and i remember just looking at the doll and i wouldn't give the policeman eye contact and i just stared at my knees and i cried i was so upset yeah. and these policemen clearly they weren't trained like they they just knew that they needed to do something they were required to be there but there wasn't any training in place all they know is i've said nothing but the reality is, is because they're asking me the wrong questions. You know, they should be, they should be getting personally getting out of Kendall and saying, where did he make you touch him or, or whatever, or maybe think about other alternatives. But that was it. That was, that was the only time I can recall there being any serious effort in the matter. And then I didn't say anything there go. They couldn't do They felt like, I guess that they couldn't do anything about it. And because it was a very well-to-do school district the school was so concerned about not letting it get out that there was a child abuser in their midst that they worked so mm. hard to just squash it so you know i was given pills which by the way pills don't fix the problem just like yeah. alcohol doesn't fix the problem you know um and and it was just this well let's give her this pill let's try this let's stick her with this crazy psychologist or whatever and and it was just all wrong you know, and in the end, I, I acted out. I, I was horrible. I was a horrible kid for about three years. And I remember the response that I got was, oh, well, she's just going through a phase. And even now, as an adult, I get told, remember when you went through that phase? I'm like, oh, yeah, that phase where kids get sexually assaulted and then they act out when they're preteen, that phase that every teenager goes through. And I think even, even now, there is still this stigma that um, has continued. I don't think, I don't, I think when you've been trained in a certain generation to think a certain thing, I think you kind of lean into that because that's how you're able to process it. So like even now I sort of get this response of, oh, well, Anne just went through a phase. It's like, no, I, I went through trauma. I had mm -hmm. no support and I acted out at home and I wasn't pleasant, but it's because I literally had no support whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, this, this idea of of recognizing that we need better support systems in place is so so important and i don't think it's it's valued enough i mean i think you talked about in your your article with sapiens about you know people people are homeless sometimes people a lot of times people are homeless because they were 
if you don't have a foundation to grow up on or to to build yourself up on, then how can you be able or expected to stand up tall? Mm. You know, and and I think if people's responses are to, you know, take medication or whatever, it, it's, it, you know, it's not even a Band-Aid over a gash wound. It's, it's just going to make the problem even worse. Mm. Um, and, and within this, you know, you talk about how there's there's been a survivor movement, mm. uh, which focuses on redirecting the shame and guilt placed on the survivor to concentrating more on what you refer to as society's shame regarding sexual abuse on children. Could you explain to us a bit more about this? Yeah, so, um, yes, I, I guess first to recognize that um, just how let, you, let down you were uh, in, when you should have been supported and to say that, you know, that that's a, unfortunately a very common, a very common experience of survivors and it seems Although I would, I don't have research data to hand. It seems to be especially common for, for people who are students at quite um, affluent schools. Mm, interesting. Um, and and even now, I've spoken with people from a particular survivor organisation who do school training, and they were told at one affluent school, "Well, we don't have that problem here because yeah. because yeah, of, of our type of school." To which both of them said, "Well, we were sexually abused in." In your type of school. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Said. That was cute, but no. <laughs> um, so that that kind of myth persists, even in spite of, you know, and this was in the last year. Um, so even in spite of that, you know, even if you cursorily do a Google search of... of you don't pay extra for no sexual abuse. You know, that's not part of the fees. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. Yeah. Although I think there is the assumption, actually, I think that could be a real cover for some people that there's the assumption that. Yeah, we paid more for this, more to not have this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but also that there, well, I think there's slightly tangential to your question, but in the past, there has also been particular, other particular problems with people who are given scholarships or people whose siblings were able to go to a particular school um, because they were, for example, in a position within the choir or whatever. And we think of the kinds of pressure on a child um, to have to disclose this and be told, well, if this is the case, you might lose your scholarship. scholarship. You know, yeah. Your, and your then your parents will be so mad, right? Exactly. All these additional kind of pressures already on children. Um, in terms of society's shame, um, so there's actually, um, there's a survivor activist called Emma Jane Taylor, who, who runs an amazing project, the name of the project. Um, I've, I've currently just lost in my head. I'm so bad at remembering things. That's okay. Um, but she's even brought out this T-shirt range, which is a hashtag, not my shame, um, and a complimentary one, not their shame, um, for those who haven't been sexually abused as a child. And uh, the whole thing's about this is society's shame, not mine, because children aren't in a position to give consent. Um, it's not although survivors evidently do feel guilt and shame, it's not because of actions that they they chose to take. Um, so it's really about reorienting the understanding of whose responsibility it is to take on that shame. Mm -hmm. And I really think it's societies as it moves forward, because I mean, the same types of knowledge about sexual abuse has been known for, well, at least 70 years. There was a, the first memoir of child sexual abuse came out in the 50s. Um, and was a bestseller in in England, um, and still the same. There are the same um, narratives that emerge, the same denial, the deflection 
or what um, they refer to as is it Davo in the literature, you know, about rejecting, rejecting um, disclosures or people's experiences for different re reasons. Um, mm. So it seems to me we know a lot um, about survivors' experiences um, because there's a wealth of research about that. So the question is now, well, what do we do with it? Mm. You know, we know all this. Um, and that's not to say it's not important for survivors to engage in research, especially survivor-led research. But it's rather to say, well, we've done what we can there. The real work is about changing changing all of the structures around survivors. And I think that's where anthropology potentially um, can have a, a big impact. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would think that, wouldn't I? <laughs> yeah, well, you should, as, as would I. Um, so if we could, you talked about um, the basically children not being believed, um, which I can yeah. say from personal experience. Um, in the past, you have stated that society challenges the testimony of children. And I, and I should preface this by saying it's not that my parents didn't believe me. I just think that um, it's this communal idea of, of just sort of quieting down or, you know, mm -hmm. it's all in your head or you should you should be over this right now, which unfortunately are are themes that I heard quite yeah. a bit from from various people. Um, but yes, yeah, so the, the society challenges of um, the testimony of children and their validity when it comes to, to sexual abuse cases as a whole. Uh, why do you think this is the case and how as a society can we change this? Yes, yeah, so, um, as, as I work with um, survivors of non-recent sexual abuse and survivors who are over 18, I guess um, I don't have data to hand about this. What I would say is that children are often presented as imperfect adults, adults who don't yet have the requisite knowledge or things, so can only ever give partial truths about reality. Mm -hmm. And that emerges, you know, much more innocent ways than than in sexual abuse testimonies. Um, but when it comes to disclosing something like sexual abuse, it can be so easy for people to say you must have misinterpreted it. Or, oh, my gosh, the amount of times I got that my days. Anyway, sorry, go on. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and I think compounding factors are society draws up the type of an archetype of the type of child that is sexually abused and mm -hmm. by them. And, and you know, as we've said a few times throughout this, survivors come from every demographic, every every type. There is no perpetrator to type, and there is no survivor type, especially, although we can draw kind of trends in in data and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, but then there are also compounding aspects um, around set, around if children come from particular homes or if they're doing particular things at school or perhaps if they've come from more difficult family backgrounds, it can be easier to deny if or uh, to deny their testimony if they're saying something about, say, a very quote unquote respectable man in the community because it's predominantly men. Mm -hmm. um, so we as a whole view children as imperfect adults and therefore not capable of appropriate testimony. But then within that, yeah, there are types that we further suggest have more limited capability of representing experiences faithfully. In what sense? Well, that, well, that he can't really have done that because she's just, she wouldn't, you know, she's the type, she's come from the kind of home where she'd lie about that in order to, in order to get some compensation or get attention or things like that. And I think um, 
perpetrators likely have a very mm, acute awareness of the type of children that might be disbelieved. Mm. Um, mm. There seems to be some, I don't know, antennae sounds too unacademic, but it seems like people have an awareness of these kind of vulnerabilities in children, um, and particularly those who are likely not to be believed by authorities. Hmm. Interesting. Um, but I don't have data. That's that's from survivors of. Yeah. I mean, you think about it. I mean, these people that do these horrible things, um, you know, they're attackers, right? So <laughs> they're looking for prey and they're looking for easy prey. Um, a small child, like what's the worst they can do, right? Like physically speaking, what's the worst they can do? Um, you know, depending on the generation when it was done, who's how who's going to believe them? Um, but I think also, uh, we talked about this previously, as an adult, I think there is this idea of what a victim should look like. They yeah. should have a cocaine addiction. They should be a prostitute. Um, you know, they should come from a family that is totally dysfunctional by societal norms. Um, I am not a prostitute. <laughs> I do not have a cocaine addiction. Um, and yet, and I don't come from a home like that, but, um, I did come from a conservative home. Um, but as you said, you know, it doesn't matter your background, um, victims come in all shapes and sizes and those that, uh, consider themselves survivors or those that have been through that experience could be professionals like you and me who work really hard to separate the event from the person. Um, so I, I know this isn't one of the questions that I gave you, but what do you think society has in their head of what they think a victim looks like? Well, I think, it, well, it can be, it means different things in different spaces. I know Judith, Judith Herman, whose work is, is brilliant in relation to, um, gender-based violence speaks about the kind of in relation to um, victims of rape, that it's expected that they should be blonde, white, and kind of virginal. And if they're not, then they um, then they don't meet the authentic criteria for for mm. rape survivor. I think for children, it's slightly different in that it's expected that it should sort of be the quiet church mouse um, who's struggling at school. And so many don't meet that. You can be you know, high flying all A's head, yeah. you know, head boy or girl. Likewise, you can be mouthy and aggressive and seemingly very assertive and similarly be having these, these challenges and these experiences. Um, and each one, obviously I've painted in broad, broad, broad brush strokes, but either each of these archetypes, um, enables its own forms of denials. Well, it can't, if you were still doing that well in school, it can't have been that serious. I can yeah. promise you I wasn't doing that. I was, and then I wasn't. But, you know. Well, yeah, that seems But then it's interesting. It was apparently my fault. That That's the other interesting thing is the response from teachers mm -hmm. was that I was I was the problem and nobody ever stopped to think about what's the root of the problem. Mm. Um, but again, you know, this, this was the generation I grew up in. So That must uh, be very challenging, very difficult. Mm, yeah, yeah, it was. But um. I would say, though, um, in your article with Sapiens, you state that thinking more systematically about how sexual abuse gets perpetrated 
is necessary for real social change. Um, could you talk to us a bit more about this and, and why you think this would be beneficial? Yes, yeah, so I think um, it can be, as we've mentioned earlier, it can be easier to think of the sort of stranger in the park type mm. 70s infomercials. Similarly, now I think the kind of image of the of the religious figure or or things like that come more easily as the kind of archetype of the perpetrator of sexual abuse mm. when all available research seems to indicate the most likely perpetrator is a father within the family home. Mm. Um, so that raises a different set of questions that obviously we can't put in place institutional barriers in each family home that would be no. beyond the open government and no one would want that. But that then raises different questions of how do you go about tackling this issue? And it mm. seems to me that then it's really about um, best supporting survivors to enable them to feel able and supported in disclosing um, yeah, and supporting their needs from the earliest possible moment. Mm -hmm. I think it's through that early, this is again, again, because I don't work with children, I don't work in services and things like that. This is where I think the strongest change would come is through supporting the, the focus being on supporting survivors um, and sort of complementarily um, going after perpetrators. It seems too, too often that the second is the focus because, you know, us getting it's easier to run down the hall and get out a pitchfork rather than to deal with someone in front of us who's in acute trauma. Mm -hmm. And I think there's an element of that. And that's not to dis diminish how important it is to. Yeah. Don't worry me. I want a pitchfork, you know, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, well, someone else might be able to run down the corridor for the pitchfork while we yeah, yeah. support the person who's left in the room rather than mm -hmm. abandon the person in the room. Right. You know, running about with a pitchfork, not knowing who to. What do you do with a pitchfork prod? Something? Well, preferably in the heart or the eye, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, so that's, that's what I think. I, yeah. I, it's probably a bit divisive, but I think it's all about. I, th I think, and I think for too long, the focus hasn't been on really what do we, re what do we really need to do to, to support um, children and survivors. Mm. Okay. What additional ways do you think uh, members of society can become more proactive in preventing child sexual abuse from happening? And do you think that's even possible? So I think talking about it, um, obviously, we don't need to go into schools and from a very early age present children with the worst, worst things that can happen in society. Um, but I think enabling or um, empowering children with the language to talk about it and to have clear, um, to have it clear in their heads who they could talk to um, and what would happen when they did would be a really positive step. I think having a more broad reckoning with um, the prevalence of, of child sexual abuse and its impacts in a way that's not stigmatizing um, would be really important. So I think while this seems impossible to conceptualize if we think about something like me too or everyone's invited which engaged with subjects that was significantly tabooed but through this outpouring of breaking um it's really helped to destigmatize reporting some of these things and i'm not being utopian about it, it hasn't mm. fixed sexual or gender-based violence or things like that and i also recognize that it required you know the one thing that i said 
shouldn't be the case to require survivors to do more is predominantly what these social movements drew on. It required people to share, to, to kind of show the true prevalence of it. But I think speaking about it more and speaking about it openly mm. and people knowing or having an awareness of how to respond or how to follow up on disclosures or talking about this would be really important. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and finally, um, what advice would you have for those who are still silently struggling? Um, that's really difficult because people can be silent and struggling for so many different reasons. And I wouldn't want to pretend that it's easy. While advice can be simple, I think it's, it can be really difficult as well. Mm. Um, I, from my limited experience, the most beneficial step for a lot of people is engaging with survivor groups, survivor-led groups. They seem to have really positive outcomes. Many of these spaces are very welcoming, don't require people to share details of their experiences, but survivors being in a space together um, can be really important for, a sense, for building up a sense of self and community and a kind of support group. So I would say without wanting to give a kind of non-clinical recommendation, because I'm not a clinician, um, that survivor groups would be the, would be a very positive step forward. Um, but that's not going to be possible for everyone. And it can be really difficult to appear in front of a group. And for a lot of people, if I were to speak in what I think should be available to survivors, long-term th therapeutic care that didn't mm, require absolutely. a diagnosis would be really positive. And there have been movements in that step, but at mm. the moment, as far as I'm aware, you can't get therapy on the basis of being a survivor of child sexual abuse. You could only get therapy on the basis of having a diagnosis of something, which are obviously two very distinct. It's interesting you say that because when I was initially starting therapy, which, um, Eventually, when I was older, I got an amazing therapist, and I, I strongly advise um, mm. do your homework. You know, yeah. not all therapists are good therapists, um, but the ones that are good are amazing, life changing. Um, they never put me down for you know victim of X. It was oh well, she has obsessive compulsive disorder. Mm. It's like well, I have OCD because it was the catalyst. It was a need to control something that I couldn't fix in the past. So, you know, I was given medication for OCD, but I wasn't. We weren't dealing with the problem, you know. Yeah. So even, you know, looking back, even when I went back into therapy and I finally found a good one, it was I was diagnosed for depression, but it was like no, but it's situational. Like I'm not like a depressed person. I just, they, they felt like <laughs> there was only so many boxes that they could get in order for me to get into an appointment. And I find that really surprising. Yeah. Um, and I mean, in that case, it was when I was diagnosed with epilepsy, but you know, even then it, it's, it's weird to me. Like you would think if you went through a trauma, you should be like cutting the queue, you know? Mm. Um, do you, do you have any insight as to why that's the case? I think it's just, I mean, only limited insight because again i'm not a mental health professional um but it just seems to be the way that these systems have been set up and there, there have there are changes coming from what i've heard from mental health professionals i work with mm. um a second a problem that's related to the situation you describe is that 
for a lot of people, if you get um, allocated a therapist on the basis of a diagnosis, it's likely they won't be a specialist in in the types of trauma related to child sexual abuse. So they might not be equipped with how to deal with it, what types of language to use, how best to support a survivor, um, which can itself be really problematic and re-traumatizing. So they might be amazing at treating OCD, but have no um, training or support or awareness of how to how to engage with someone with experiences of child sexual abuse. But that makes it even more problematic. Yeah. You know, like that doesn't fix it. That actually makes it worse. It's like, you, well, there should be therapists who specialize in trauma because people go to therapy for trauma all the time. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there are, you know, I'm, I'm really, it's brilliant that you found a good therapist because there are some amazing ones out there. Yeah, yeah. They, she was great. Fantastic. And I didn't, yeah, I didn't mean to suggest people shouldn't access therapy. People absolutely should. Unfortunately for many, the waiting list is extremely long when you do access it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's harrowing hearing mental health colleagues' experiences of, um, you know, because you only get the 12, 12 weeks on the NHS. In the UK. In the UK. That's fine, yeah. yeah. Um, and in, in NHS settings. And I think you can access then further forms of support. But to try and resolve something as, you know, with such complex PTSD-related outcomes as child sexual abuse within 12 weeks is very, even for the best... It's impossible. It's impossible. Yeah. Um, and currently these services are so stretched, it's, um, it's very difficult and will be causing considerable social harms. Yeah. Um, so that's why I didn't say get into therapy, you know, next week, because that, that is a long-term and can be quite a challenging process although very beneficial when it does work. Yeah. So I think maybe, you know, communities might be a good place to start. And then as and when, you know, if you're able to maybe branch out into therapy, would you say? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think um, there are more and more survivor-based groups emerging across the UK. Um, And I think having that space is really supportive for survivors, especially those who um are considering going to therapy or counseling or or things like that it can be a really supportive atmosphere and you can Mm. it doesn't require you to share Mm. and can just kind of hold hold whatever you need to hold in that Mm. moment yeah and i would say about therapy um if i could kind of end on on this um so i i saw several therapists over the span of of some time, um, but the one I really, really liked um, was interestingly after I was diagnosed with epilepsy from a car crash, and mm. I they had to put down something, so they put me down as as depressed. Like, yeah, well, I got my head caved in. Of course, I'm not very happy. But <laughs> um, anyway, when I was with her, we ended up talking about sexual assaults, um, death of my brother, like uh, just a whole host of of things. And in the beginning, I cried a lot because it's you're, you're putting your soul out. To this person you don't know, um, who's having to process, like, you basically just throwing verbal diarrhea in their face. But what I learned over time is that this was, like, my safe space. Because I didn't want to talk to my friends about it. I didn't really talk to my family about it. I liked that I could go in, just unload, like, whatever was in my mind, and then shut the door. And I knew it was going to stay safe. And I knew it was just going to... Be there for the following week and we deal with it as and when but I knew I was making a turn when I 
went from crying every session to laughing and cracking jokes. And my mom would be in the the waiting area and she'd hear me laughing with the psychologist. And that's when we realized like I was coming through some stuff and I could even Mm -hmm. joke with her because in therapy, they're not, depending on the type of therapy you go to, they're not really supposed to tell you what to do with your life. Mm-hmm. But there were times I could tell she wanted to say something and I'd say, you're, you're not telling me the full story. I can see you're hiding something behind her eyes and she'd get all like embarrassed and laugh. But the point is there is happiness that can come through mm-hmm. the process. There is a hope and there is a joy and I just feel like that needs to be, uh, I cannot stress that enough. Absolutely, yeah. Um Look, we, we're obviously not diminishing the impacts of our sexual abuse, but at the same time, there's real scope for hope and for um, forms of coping and living a full and fulfilled life and laughing and things like that. It's not, I don't think I could stay working on child sexual abuse if there wasn't that. And mm. the, um, support and creativity of survivor community and survivors that I work with, I, I just don't think I could stay in it if, it, if there wasn't that. Uh, and I think these survivor spaces are amazing for emphasizing that as much as um, as much as the, the negative impacts, obviously. And that sounds, yeah, that sounds brilliant in terms of your therapy. How amazing to have that. Yeah, that she was great. Transition. She was really, really good. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, well, I have to say that's it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Dr. Ann Wand. I'd like to thank William again for joining us at the studio this afternoon. Additional information on today's topic will be available on our website in the show notes, and then we'll be including apps and all sorts of information. Um, and if you'd like to check out William's bonus talk later this month, well, he'll be talking about something very different regarding the anthropology of sport and dance. Then consider becoming a patron starting at one pound per month. It's support from our patrons that really helps to keep the show going. By becoming a patron, you get access to extra bonus content, patron-only interviews, panels, workshops, and much more. To join, just head over to patreon.com slash podcast. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Thank you.